Father, I thank you for the wonderful semester that you've given us. Lord, really the, the wonderful year that we have had joining our hearts together and, and focusing on various topics of your word and trying to go deep with that, trying to apply these things to our lives so that we will be more and more conformed to the image of your wonderful son. Lord, as we consider all these things and move into the summer, I pray, Father, that you would help us to not forget what we have heard, not forget the things that we have learned, stir our hearts, bring conviction, help us to be disciplined for the purpose of godliness, to get up in the morning, to spend time in your word, to spend time in prayer. And sometimes I know when our schedules are changing, we're out of town, we have guests, all those many different things, they can be so disrupting to us that we can all of a sudden wake up one morning and realize it has been days or weeks since we've been in your word, since we've spent dedicated time in prayer. Oh, Father, please let us not be like that. I pray that we would be faithful. We would be found faithful to be in your word, to constantly be studying it. I pray that you would prepare our hearts for next semester when we join our hearts together. I pray that you would give wisdom to the ladies as they consider what studies they will do, how they will be involved. I pray that you would give us many opportunities to love and serve one another, particularly over the summer. Lord, I pray that you would grow this body of women, your children here at Grace Community Church, that we would be a reflection of our head, Jesus Christ, that we would have unified hearts around him who died for us. Father, please help us not to grow cold, not to grow complacent. And Lord, as we consider your word today and we think about the topic of worldliness, I pray that you would help us to not be worldly. Oh, Father, I see it so much in my own life, and I don't, I don't even realize how often I think like the world. And it affects how I live. It affects how, what I believe. And then, Father, when I live out the truths, <laughs> the lies of the world, then I, I live in sin, and it's destructive. Oh, Father, open our eyes. Give us insight to your word. I pray that you would help me to communicate these precious truths that I'm so burdened with this morning in a way that the ladies will understand, that, that you will, by your spirit, take my feeble efforts and that you will give them understanding so that they will hate worldliness and that they will pursue Christ with all entire wholeheartedness for your glory that they would find themselves, that we would find ourselves satisfied in Christ for your glory. In your name we pray, amen. So just now as Rachel was helping me get set up, she said, oh, worldliness, huge topic. <laughs> yes, it is a huge topic. And of course, we know from our chapter, actually, this was a longer chapter too, right? And how many topics did Jerry Bridges talk about three, only three topics of worldliness. And it's interesting because I have actually been reading some other things and I was actually telling my small group last week, I said, I'm actually so excited for today because I kind of was formulating where I was going to go and, and which angle I was going to take as I was thinking about worldliness and, and what we need to take away from that. How do we need to think? And kind of my I don't have a recorder. I have to look at the time. Oh, my goodness. 
I didn't realize how much this would throw me for a loop. When do I have to be done? Um, okay, so... <clears throat> So anyways, as I was thinking through this, like you could go in so many different directions, what direction do we go? So my goal today is going to be to answer the question, why should we avoid worldliness? Um, so that is the title of the, of the message, why we must avoid worldliness. Because what is, what is actually happening? What is the underlying thing that is happening that... Um, for one, tempts us toward worldliness, and what is what is accomplished? That's not a really good word for it. When we are worldly, what is sabotaged? Maybe would be the better word to use. So, anyways, let's get started. So, did you know that there is a category of criminals who are referred to as distraction thieves? Perhaps you've heard of them. Distraction thieves often work in pairs and typically target women. Yeah, yes. Generally, they are professionals, well-dressed and well-spoken. And they're men and women who commit their crimes mainly in retail businesses such as supermarkets, hotel lobbies, car rental agencies, or airport terminals and various other places. An example of how they might work together at a supermarket might look something like this. One distraction thief approaches a likely target always from an angle that forces the soon-to-be victim to turn away from her handbag in her shopping cart to address the stranger. The thief will ask the target a seemingly innocuous question, possibly for an opinion on a product, where a certain item can be located, or another question that will divert the victim's attention for a few seconds. During that amazingly short amount of time, the distractor's accomplice will dip into the woman's handbag, remove the wallet, cell phone, checkbook, and anything else of value, and slip away. Most victims never see the accomplice, and by the time the victim realizes the loss, both thieves are long gone. I'm not sharing that so that you guys can be paranoid every time you go to the store. <laughs> there is a reason why I'm talking about distractions. Like the victim of the distraction thieves, we too can be distracted in a spiritual sense. In the same way that the supermarket shopper was lured away from her important personal property, we too can be lured away from what is important spiritually. Understanding the dangerous reality of distraction, the Apostle Paul warned the Corinthian believers not to be lured away from what? their devotion to Christ. You guys remember the verse from 2 Corinthians 11.3? He wrote this, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We live in a world that is filled with distractions that aim to lead us away from what is most important in our lives. So as you know from our chapter this week, uh, Jerry Bridges described, as I already mentioned, three particular ways we tend to accept and even embrace worldliness in our everyday lives to the degree that it becomes a respectable sin. Like we don't even really think about it, we don't process it, we don't view it as sin. 
As we consider the topic of worldliness this morning, I would like to begin by using Bridges' definition. So if you remember, I think he had two places where he gave his definition. So he began in the first, the first couple of pages. He says, worldliness is being attracted to, engrossed in, or preoccupied with the things of the temporal life. And then if you remember, like several pages later, he continues and he adds this description as well. It's accepting and going along with the values and practices of society around us without discerning if they are biblical. Great definitions. So in order to help us understand why we are so easily distracted and led away from devotion to Christ, I really want to take a deeper look at the various facets of worldliness this morning and how these things work together to distract us from a single-minded pursuit of Christ. So we're kind of almost, if you, excuse me. You can kind of think of it almost like a thread. We're kind of going to go full circle all the way around like that. And I'm not going to address necessarily specific things. Like when I was a kid, the thing was, I think I mentioned this before, movies. Movies are worldly. You stay away from bad movies. Music that is secular is oftentimes bad. You stay away from those things. And that that is true. We need to guard ourselves from those things. But there's much more to it than just picking out this worldly thing or that worldly thing. So we're on our outline already. Number one, the unregenerate heart is never satisfied. So keep in mind here our little thread. So this is where we're starting. One of the reasons we are so easily distracted is because the natural, meaning the unregenerate or the fleshly heart of man is always searching for something else to satisfy his desire. The natural position of the unregenerate heart, the unbeliever, is to be dissatisfied and discontent. They're always searching for something else. And you remember from Ecclesiastes 1.8, he says this, all things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. And then listen to what he says. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. The unregenerate heart is never satisfied. They always want more or different or better. Always, always, always this pursuit, looking for something that will fulfill, looking for something that will satisfy. Proverbs 27, 20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. Again, it's the same point, reiterating that the heart of the unregenerate person is never satisfied. When a person becomes a believer, they are filled with what? The Holy Spirit, who begins to transform their previous ungodly desires. But we know that that doesn't happen immediately, does it? It takes time. Old patterns often take time to change. Once a person becomes a believer, she must learn through the study of Scripture, and then she must practice through the strength of the Holy Spirit how to be satisfied how to be content. We don't all of a sudden become a believer and now all of a sudden we are content and we are satisfied. We have to work out our salvation. We have to work at these things. 
This does not come naturally, and thus we must work to put off the old, dissatisfied self and put on the new self, which finds her satisfaction and contentment in the Lord. It is only as we know Christ our Savior that our searching hearts can find rest. And one of the reasons, as believers, we do not find rest is because we are still searching, just like the unregenerate person, looking to find satisfaction, and we are looking for it in the world. We are not looking for it in Christ, and thus we continue, just like the unbeliever, to be dissatisfied and discontent. So just to give you a little foreshadowing of where we're going in our lesson, the world system is designed to appeal to that sinful, fleshly dissatisfaction by keeping us distracted and to prevent us from being satisfied in Christ. That, that's kind of the whole summary of what we're talking about this morning. And this is massively important that we understand this. So I am going to explain this, but before I get to that point, I want to first consider the wonder of being satisfied in Christ. So we've got our little comparison, right? So we start out with the unregenerate person is never satisfied, but the believer can be satisfied in Christ. So number two, only in Christ is the heart of man satisfied. So Psalms 17, <clears throat> uh, David says this, he says uh, from verses 14 and 15 from, well, let me explain first. What he's doing is he's comparing the, the unregenerate man and how they are looking for satisfaction in things of the world. And then he's comparing it with his own desire to find satisfaction in, in, in Christ. It, I mean, he didn't know about Christ then, the Messiah to come, but in God. So he wrote this, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, and whose belly you fill with your treasury. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes, which we know, ultimately, can our children satisfy us? No, so they're looking for satisfaction in these things that actually don't provide satisfaction. And then he goes on and he says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. He doesn't mean when he wakes up in the morning. He means at the resurrection. So he, he knows that true satisfaction is only found in Christ. And that truly will happen when he sees God face to face. This, of course, now is by faith. But still, David understood the comparison of the, the unbelieving person who is not satisfied. And he himself who was satisfied in, in God. In Psalm 107, the psalmist explains that God is the one who satisfies the soul. Psalm 107, 8 and 9 says this, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied their thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. What is good? That doesn't necessarily mean temporal things. He has filled our hearts with the goodness of Christ, our eternal hope. 
in the New Testament. So I just, I should have warned you up front. We are hitting a lot of verses today. So try and keep up with me. And I always get a little nervous to do this because I know sometimes it can just be like my voice just starts to go. I don't want that to happen. But you have to understand how all of this fits together. You have to see all the different passages of scripture so that you have a broad and fuller understanding. So it's just not my opinion that you're hearing. You're hearing the truths of scripture. So this is why we're going through all of this. So Jesus explained that those who hunger for righteousness will be satisfied because ultimately righteousness is found in God. And remember from the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 6, he says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they shall be satisfied. The Apostle Paul understood that satisfaction could only be found in his Savior. Only through salvation in Jesus Christ could the broken, depraved, sinful heart be liberated from the slavery to sin to walk in righteousness. And only in freedom from sin could a heart truly be satisfied. So in light of this, Paul describes his single-hearted pursuit of Christ. So let me help to bring those two things together because I didn't do that very good. So Jesus is saying that the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be satisfied because where do we find, where do we find righteousness? Only in God. And so only in God will we find satisfaction. And then we are blessed. Remember, blessed. Happy is the man. Happy is the person who is satisfied in God. So then now we're moving on to the Apostle Paul. So I'm kind of giving you like from the Old Testament and then from the New Testament. And Paul doesn't say specifically to find your satisfaction in Christ, but his entire life is a testimony of finding his heart to be satisfied in Christ. So if you remember, we have to go here, but Philippians 3, 8, right? So I'm going to actually read 3, 8 through 10. He says this, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So, as I said a minute ago, only through salvation in Jesus Christ could the broken, depraved, sinful heart be liberated from slavery to sin to walk in righteousness. And what does Paul say about himself? I, who am the foremost of sinners. He saw himself as such a sinner that when Christ saved him, he had eyes only for his Savior. And so he says, everything else is lost to me compared to knowing Christ my Savior. So I want to draw your attention to a phrase of Paul's declaration toward the end here. He says this, and, and we're just skimming over the top of these, taking like little bits of truth from each of these verses. But he says this in verse 10. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. This is very, very important to what we're studying today. Because, of course, we know the most important thing for Paul was to know Christ. And in knowing Christ, Paul's heart was satisfied. But he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. To know Christ is going to include and require suffering. We can never escape it. And again, another little foreshadowing. This is the lie the world wants to tell us. That we can have Christ and no suffering. And we as believers believe it. Hook, line, and sinker. And then we are disillusioned and dissatisfied because we are looking for satisfaction in the things of the world. We are no longer looking for them in Christ. So Paul, again, makes a similar statement to what he says in Philippians. And this is from 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. He says this, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This was the entire goal of Paul's life, to know Jesus Christ. And yet he knew that in that knowing, it was going to be accompanied by suffering. There was nothing more important than Paul's life than knowing Christ Jesus. Everything he did, every place he went, every word he spoke, every person he taught and evangelized, it was all motivated by a desire to know Christ and to please him. And what did it come with? Suffering every place he went, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, dangers. You remember that list in 2 Corinthians, dangers here, dangers there, dangers, dangers. All these dangers, the suffering that accompanied knowing Christ. And yet, all that suffering never stole his satisfaction in Christ. He continued, despite the suffering, actually, along with the suffering, to be satisfied in Christ. So number three, <clears throat> Paul was satisfied in Christ. So do you know why Paul was able to suffer such hardship without despairing, without losing heart or abandoning hope? Paul was satisfied in Christ. That's the whole thing. That's why he could suffer so well. Have you ever looked at his life and thought, how could Paul possibly go through all those things? It's because he was satisfied in Christ. <clears throat> Christ was always at the center of his purposes and desires. He never lost sight of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10, Paul writes this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Powerful, powerful phrases that he's using here. How could that be? Because in our worldly mindset, in our worldly economy, there's no way you could experience all of those things without absolute despair. And then he goes on in verse 10 and he says, Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Christ also may be manifested in our body. Christ was Paul's all in all. His hope, 
his joy, his satisfaction, his purpose, his desire. And if you have read the epistles, you may have noticed that Paul often exuberantly bursts out in praise to the Lord. Like over and over again, we see he'll just be writing along and then all of a sudden, it's like, and praise to the glory of God, and praise to the glory of God. Why? Even in his suffering, this is where he goes. Because he was satisfied in Christ. So I'm just going to read, oh, number four, I guess, on your outline. Paul's satisfaction in Christ resulted in exuberant praise. So I'm just going to kind of go through these really quickly, and I'm not even going to read the whole passage around these verses because it will take too long. But I just want you to see again and again how Paul just bursts out in praise to the Lord. So in 1 Timothy uh, one seventeen, he says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then in 1 Timothy 6, 16, he says, well, I will read this, 15 and 16, because it's all one sentence here. So he says, he will bring about, uh, so he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in approachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And then in Ephesians 3, verse 21, he says, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Is this the pattern of your life? As you are just going through your everyday life, do you just all of a sudden burst out with this exuberant praise of the Lord for who he is? I don't. And I'm really convicted over that. Because I'm not actually mirroring the life of Paul then because this was his pattern because his sole purpose and goal in life was to know Jesus Christ and in knowing Jesus Christ he was entirely satisfied and so he could then burst forth with praise again and again we're not done and this isn't all of them by the way Romans 11 36 says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then in 2 Timothy, remember, this is at the end of his life. This is the last book that he wrote. And he says this in chapter 4, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Where was Paul when he wrote that? He was in prison facing death and he knew it. An old man at this point. And he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Is that what you believe? Is that what gets you out of bed in the morning? Is that what drives you to know your Savior? Do you think about this and ponder it and consider it? Do you find your satisfaction in the one that will do this? Because if you do, you will be like Paul to just burst out and say, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Paul was truly satisfied in Christ. But we need to keep in mind that this eternal focus of satisfaction in Christ was accompanied by temporal suffering. Again, I'm going to give you a bit of foreshadowing here. The world proclaims that we can be satisfied apart from suffering. This is, as we know, a bold-faced lie. When we choose to know Christ, we choose to be satisfied in him. And this will automatically set us at odds with the world. We cannot be satisfied in Christ and be satisfied in what the world offers. We cannot. And if we are choosing to be satisfied in the world, that means we are choosing not to be satisfied in Christ. And if we are choosing to be satisfied in Christ, we are choosing not to be satisfied in the world. And when we do not look like the world, when we do not think like the world, when we do not talk like the world, the world will hate us. And then comes the suffering. Are we content in that? Because we should be. We should expect suffering. But we are wimpy Americans that have no clue how to suffer. We don't think we should. We don't think we deserve to. Everything about our society tells us that suffering is bad and we need to do everything we can to escape suffering. And do you know what happens when people try to escape suffering and they go toward the world to do it? They dig deeper and deeper into sin and they eventually self-destruct, destroy their lives. It is a gruesome horrible experience and we need to understand what's going on here so that we have this bigger broader understanding of worldliness so that we can see the seriousness of what is going on behind the scenes that we don't often think about paul's love for christ and satisfaction in christ should be the attitude that characterizes all of us and paul even encouraged the believers in various churches to follow his example and one of those was in philippians three seventeen. he says brethren Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. We should follow Paul's example of making it our one purposeful goal to know Christ. We too need to be characterized by an unwavering, single-minded focus on Jesus Christ. Love and devotion to Christ should be what gets us up in the morning. It should be what drives us to the word and to prayer. It should be what we base our priorities upon as we schedule our day. It should be what motivates us to love those around us. Love for Christ should be what determines how I spend my money, my time, my energy, my resources. Everything should be determined by this. So number five. The satisfied heart is an obedient heart. The heart that that is pursuing Christ is going to then be obedient. John 14, 15 says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We can never separate our love for Christ from obeying his word. Always. We will obey his word if we are seeking to love him. Our our obedience is a demonstration of that love. Satisfaction in Christ and obedience to Christ will always walk hand in hand. The person who is satisfied in Christ is not going to be searching for other things, namely worldly things. 
to make them happy. They will rest in the sovereignty of God regardless of their circumstances. When the pressures of life squeeze them, guess what's going to come out for the person who is satisfied in Christ? When the pressures of life squeeze, the fruit of the Spirit is going to come out, not sinfulness. As John Piper has said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. You've probably heard that before. When the pressures of life, so I already said this part, but when the pressures of life squeeze those who are satisfied in Christ, the spirit will flow from them and God is then glorified. God is glorified when we live out the fruit of the spirit. And the only way we can do that is through obedience to the word. And the motivation for that is love for Christ. When we are satisfied in God, it will be our desire to please him in obedience. Ultimately, why? So that we will bring glory to God. That, that is the overarching purpose of our life. If you guys, if, if so, I think some of you have come to Monday night. We've talked about that in our marriages the purpose of marriage is that God would be glorified. And all the different topics that we've talked about over the course of this year has always gone back to, is God glorified by my response in my marriage, by how I live in my marriage? So standing in juxtaposition to the believer who brings glory to God by being satisfied in him is Satan who hates God and wants to rob him of his glory. Satan's greatest desire is to prevent God from receiving glory, so he will do everything in his power to accomplish this goal. So remember in our little thread that's going on here, so we have the unregenerate heart that is dissatisfied compared to the believer who is satisfied in Christ, who loves Christ and desires to please Christ through obedience. Okay, so now we really need to understand, this has kind of all been the, the foundation of where we're going here, because now just a brief discussion about Satan and what his purposes are. He wants to absolutely distract us from finding satisfaction in Christ. And he does that through his work in the world. So number six, Satan seeks to steal God's glory. So if God is glorified when we are satisfied in him, what is Satan going to try to do? He is going to try to keep us from being satisfied in God so that God will not be glorified. As we read earlier, Satan will endeavor to lead us away from Christ. And I'm going to read that verse again from 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote this. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 11.3 again. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived as the, excuse me as the serpent deceived eve by his craftiness your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to christ who is going to lead us astray satan is going to and why is he going to do that because he despises and hates god with every fiber of his being and he does not want god to receive any glory ever that was the whole whole 
point why he was kicked out of heaven because he uh, raised himself up in his own mind in pride and said, I will, I will, I will, I will. All these I will statements. He wanted to steal God's glory for himself and that attitude has not changed. And so he now works in this world system to then keep us from bringing glory to God because God is his greatest enemy and we are just simply what he uses to get at God. The apostle Paul was acutely aware of Satan's intentions. In Ephesians 6.11, he instructed the believers to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So you may have heard this before, but when we talk about schemes of the devil, we realize he has a plan. He is working to accomplish something. The word schemes means to follow craftily, to deceive, or to lie in wait. The Greek word is methodia, which is where we get our English word method. Satan has a method, a devious and deceitful plan to lead us astray from devotion to Christ. His plan is so well formulated that it is as though he is lying in wait for the best opportunity to distract us from devotion to Christ, to distract us from satisfaction in Christ. That's what he is seeking to do. But of course we know Satan is not omnipresent, right? He can't be everywhere at once. He can't possibly lie in wait for each one of us all at the same time. How could he possibly then accomplish his plan? Well, we know, of course, there's demons, but he does this by working in the world system to influence the culture and society in which we live. He is the one working behind the godlessness we see in our sexually distorted culture. He is the one driving the ideas and philosophies of CRT, of social justice, of intersectionality, of Marxism, of communism, of relativism, of postmodernism. There's a lot of isms of atheism, the victim mentality. He's behind the victim mentality. He's behind transgenderism. He's behind psychology. Ooh, no, I'm stepping on toes. See me afterwards if you don't like that statement. <laughs> he is behind all that self-help stuff that is out there. He's behind egalitarianism, substance abuse, anarchy, on and on and on and on in our culture. Who is the one behind it? It is Satan. Why? To steal glory from God. And we as Christians are so blind to this so often, we don't realize what's going on. We have to understand because when we don't understand the seriousness of this, we don't think it's a big deal when we're distracted from devotion to Christ. We make excuses for it. We cannot. It's too important. So number seven, the world lies in Satan's power or the world is directed by Satan. Satan works in the world system to influence and direct humanity towards sinfulness to keep us from bringing glory to God. He does this by blinding the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the, of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He blinds the unbelieving so that they cannot even see the glory of Christ. 
and by leading the minds of believers astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He is a liar and the father of lies who disguises himself as an angel of light and he deceives the whole world because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. By the way, those are all quotes from verses. All of this is for one purpose, which is to rob God of his glory. And we so often go right along with it and don't even realize we've done it. So when the apostle John then admonishes believers to not love the world, this is no casual command. He is warning believers to keep from loving the world because everything about the world is the antithesis of God. It has been designed by the schemes and methods of Satan's to thwart God's plan and steal his glory. The single most effective way to keep humanity from glorifying God is to keep them enslaved to sin. Therefore, Satan uses his influence in the world to appeal to the fleshly desires of man's heart so they will desire his temptations and thereby keep themselves ensnared in their own sin. So as I was considering all of this and considering that particularly, I was reminded of an example that I had actually um, used, I don't know, a couple years ago. And I thought, I think this fits right here. So I'm going to remind you of it. So if you remember, Renald III, a 14th century duke in what is now Belgium, was grossly overweight. After a violent quarrel, Renald's younger brother Edward led a successful revolt against him. Edward captured Renald but did not kill him. Instead, he built a room around Renald in the new Kirk Castle and promised him he could regain his title and property as soon as he was able to leave the room. This would not have been difficult for most, most people since the room had several windows and a door of near normal size, and none of them were locked or barred. The problem was Renald's size. To regain his freedom, he needed to lose weight. But Edward knew his older brother, and each day he sent a variety of delicious foods. Instead of dieting his way out of prison, Renald grew fatter. When Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, he had a ready answer. My brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he so wills. Do you see the correlation? We are enslaved by our own lusts. And Satan knows those things and uses the world to keep us enslaved to those desires. So in light of this, consider the way of what John is saying when he instructs us not to love the world. So number eight is do not love the world. <clears throat> so 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says this, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The entire world system is not from God. It is from Satan. He has designed it to appeal to our sinful fleshly desires in such a way that we believe it will satisfy our longing hearts. But it is a lie. It's like chasing a mirage. 
The world deceives us by offering satisfaction, but it never delivers. The satisfaction the world promises is always just out of reach. You can see it. You can almost touch it, but it's just always barely out of reach. The more we believe the lie that we can be satisfied by it, the more deeply we sink into the sin that accompanies the deception. Loving the things of this world will never satisfy our hearts who were created by God to only be satisfied in Christ. Loving the world becomes a betrayal to our Heavenly Father who sent his Son to to die for us. And it becomes a betrayal to our Savior who went to the cross to free us from the sin to which Satan endeavors to keep us enslaved. So James sharply confronts believers who pursue what the world offers. You remember what James says in James 4.4? He says, very, very strong, you adulteresses, he says. Yikes, what I do? Here's, here's the issue. You do, uh, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When we adopt, embrace, and pursue the mindset of the world, we set ourselves against God. We, his bud, blood, bought children put ourselves at odds with the one who redeemed us from satan's domain when we love the world we make an alliance with it as though we were friends camping out with the wicked enemy of god who sought to usurp his throne in the heavenlies to be worldly is an affront to god and a betrayal of his sacrifice for us This is serious, very, very serious. And the thing is, it's not just theological. This boils down to how I live my everyday life. It boils down to the decisions that I make, the things that I believe. We'll get to that in just a minute. So number nine, the world is at odds with God. The world has nothing in common with God. There's no possible way we can pursue the things of the world and still bring glory to God. Paul lays out for us a clear description of the characteristics of the unbeliever who is of the world and of the believer who is of God. So if you remember from 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through, I'm actually going to just read only 14 and 15 here, but he says this. So this is his, his uh, encouragement, his command. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. And then he explains, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? So on one hand, we have God who's fully righteous and we have the world who's entirely lawless. He says, or what fellowship has light with darkness? You can never have light and darkness together at the same place. They cannot coexist. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, word for Satan? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? You see, everything about God and the world are entirely different. They can never coexist together. And sometimes as believers, we think they can. 
And what happens is we are unhappy, dissatisfied Christians because we are looking to find satisfaction in Christ while also looking to find satisfaction in the world. And they can never coexist. And so what happens is, obviously, if we're trying to do both, we're really only trying to be satisfied in the world. We have set Christ aside. Both are running from each other in entirely opposite directions. To bring the two together would require complete compromise, but even then it would be unsatisfactory because the core character of the two are entirely at odds with one another. Rather than being like the world, we are to be transformed. Romans 12.2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the way that we keep ourselves from being worldly is by controlling how we think. Do you notice this theme that keeps coming up almost every single week? How do you think? Because that determines what you believe and that what you believe determines how you live. So number 10, do not think like the world. Paul tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, changing how we think. He wrote to the Colossians, warning them not to be led astray by philosophy and the tradition of men according to the world rather than Christ. So in Colossians 2.8, he says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. This, who's Paul writing to? He's writing to believers. Is it possible that believers can embrace the philosophies and traditions, the deceptive thinking of the world? Yes, it is. Otherwise, he wouldn't warn them not to do it. We do the same thing. And sometimes I wonder if we do it even to a worse degree than the people that Paul was writing to. Because we crave comfort and ease and the lack of suffering so incredibly, it, it, it influences how we live every day. Because if we have to choose suffering versus righteousness, we don't think about it like this, but our natural inclination is to choose not to suffer. So by default, we don't choose righteousness. Because suffering is hard. But the Apostle Paul said, it's through suffering that I know Christ. So suffering is good. To think according to the philosophies and traditions of men is to be worldly. And it sets us in opposition to Christ. This is so serious that Jesus sharply rebuked Peter when he focused on man's ideas rather than God's. So you remember from Matthew 16, I'm going to start reading in verse 21. It says this, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So Jesus is explaining this to the disciples. And remember what Peter does. Peter took him inside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. How often, with good intentions, we set our minds on the things of the world and don't even realize we're doing it. And what have we done? We have become like Satan, adopting Satan's mindset. This is serious. Peter didn't realize what he was doing when he rebuked Jesus. He wasn't trying to be like Satan, but he was. He wanted Christ to receive the glory and crown of the kingdom without the suffering of the cross. Remember, this is what the Jews wanted. They wanted a king. They wanted a Messiah that was going to set them free from the Romans. At this point, Peter hadn't fully understood what was going to happen. And so he's like, no, you can't die. You're our king. But he didn't understand. He didn't realize that Christ's path to accomplish our redemption required the suffering of the cross. Christ didn't come to be king then. He came to set us free and he will come to reign as king later. So number 11, worldly thinking denies the suffering of the cross. So let's try to bring this whole thing full circle now. Remember earlier when I read Philippians 3, where Paul described his desire to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Christ's path for our redemption required his suffering. If we desire to know Christ, we must be willing to suffer for his sake because only by suffering can we know him. This, however, requires us to be willing to die for our own desires or to die to our own desires, not for our own desires. Big difference there in that little preposition. <laughs> it requires us to die to ourselves so that we can live for Christ. We must be willing to take up our cross to follow Christ. To take up our cross is to deny ourselves for the sake of Christ, to be willing to endure the suffering of the world because of what Christ has done for us. And I'm going to read a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer here on the topic of bearing suffering. He said this, Self-denial means knowing only Christ, no longer knowing oneself. It means no longer seeing oneself, only him who is going ahead. No longer seeing the way which is too difficult for us. Self-denial says only he is going ahead. Hold fast to him. When we know only him, then we also no longer know the pain of our own cross. Then we see only him. The cross is neither misfortune nor, nor harsh fate. Instead, it is that suffering which comes from our allegiance to Jesus Christ alone. What a beautiful perspective and, and explanation. Ultimately, the underlying message of the world tells us that we should find comfort, ease, Satis and satisfaction in our temporal present circumstances. This is always the message, is it not? That we should be able to be comfortable, to be happy, to be satisfied, all now, all right now. It tells us that we should be able to have Christ without 
suffering. Think about all the different religions and all the different cults out there. This is what they're saying. We should be able to live according to scripture without the backlash of persecution. We should be able to have all good things now. But this is a lie straight from the devil. The believer who follows Christ will suffer. We cannot experience the glory of redemption without the suffering of the cross. The tragic lie that Satan purports is that we can have Christ and our best life now. We can have Christ and all the good things this world offers. We can have Christ without the suffering. Because we adopt this mindset, we set out to acquire the temporal good things of this life and Christ becomes a secondary in our pursuits. Christ becomes our little add-on to our interests. Here's where I'm going. Come on, come on, Jesus, let's go. Entirely, entirely wrong. And remember what I said earlier, it's a betrayal. It's a betrayal to the one who gave his life that we might have life. When we believe this, we are disillusioned. Of course, we're going to be disillusioned. And then we don't even know why we're disillusioned, but we are. Because the life of the Christian never comes apart from suffering. But here's the beauty of it all. When we learn to deny ourselves and find our true satisfaction in our eternal hope in Christ, the, suffering of this, the sufferings of this world lose their sting. We begin to see them for what they really are. They are a means of sanctification. They are a means to knowing Christ more fully. Suffering is not a bad thing. Because it is through that that God makes us look like his son. When we surrender to him in the midst of the suffering, when we find our satisfaction in the midst of the suffering in Christ, we look like our savior. So number 12, destroy worldly thinking. Instead of adopting the traditions of man, we need to destroy the thoughts or the reasonings that are opposed to God's. Every elevated structure, every human fortress of ideas that are raised up against the true knowledge of God must absolutely be destroyed. And you know the verse, 2 Corinthians 10.5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought, every single thought, taking it captive to the obedience of Christ. It's critical that we do this because our thoughts are so influenced by the worldly culture around us that oftentimes we don't even realize that we are thinking worldly things. So we have to constantly be evaluating, is this a true pursuit? Is this a good decision? Is this a right way of thinking? Everything. In case you think that perhaps this is a little extreme, We need to look back at the Old Testament to see how God instructed the Israelites to practice the same principle. When they headed into the promised land, God instructed them to destroy the godless worldly Canaanites because if they didn't, the Canaanites' worldly influence would entirely lead them astray from worshiping God. In Exodus 23, 
starting in verse 31, well, I'm just going to read 31 through 33 here. It said this, I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. So this is what God is telling them as they're going into the land. And he says, you shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. Why? They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So the Old Testament is like a living example of what the New Testament says. So we can take the principles of the New Testament and often go back and see like real life examples in the Old Testament. This is what was going on in the Old Testament. The Canaanites were worldly, had entire worldly mindset, directed and guided by the ruler of this world who is Satan. And God said, when you go into that land, because you are a holy people separated unto me, you must go in and utterly destroy them. Because if you don't, you will sin against me and you will worship their gods. And what did they do? They didn't go in and destroy them. They ended up in sin, and they worshiped their God, the, the Canaanites' gods. And so God had to bring then, of course, we know, the, the judgment on them, and they were taken off into captivity years later. This is serious. The worldly system has such an incredible power to lure us by its temptations that we must be vigilant against it. There is a world system of thinking that influences and destroys. When we adopt the mindset of the world, it destroys us. It robs us of our joy. It robs us of being satisfied in Christ. And I've got just a little list here. I could have probably done way better, but I ran out of time for good ideas. But I was just trying to think about things. What are some of the things that are automatics that we just expect out of our culture? Maybe you guys can come up with some really good lists in your small group. But here are some worldly mindsets that we don't even bat an eye at most of the time. What will other people think of me? Right out the gate. Pleasing people, the fear of man. If I do the right thing, I should be rewarded by God. Right equals reward. Right in this world often actually means suffering and persecution. God is not trustworthy because he let bad things happen to me or to my loved one. A lie. If God was good, he would let so many, why would he let so many people die in disasters? People die in disasters. Therefore, God must not be entirely good. If I can just get to the next stage, it will be easier. What a lie that is. And I can almost tell you, every single person that comes into the counseling room, <laughs> you are here working with this. Be content here because we have no promise, no guarantee of what tomorrow is. You think every stage is going to be better. Love where God has you today. If you are suffering today, I realize that's hard. I realize that's painful. But I want to encourage you, embrace it because it is through that difficulty that you can experience the suffering of Christ and you can be changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, your Savior. Then we also have this one. There is, we believe that there is a place of arrival, a place where I will live without difficulty 
That's the mirage, right? I can almost get there. It's almost there. I'm almost to that place where I can just kick back and relax and life will be good. It's not true. But we fight for it as though that mirage were the truest thing on earth. I deserve better than this. That's a big one as well. How about this one? I shouldn't have to work so hard. She doesn't. She has cake for life. And I have to work this hard. And then the last one that I have on my little list here. I expect life to be fair. And when life is not fair, and you are the one that has made it unfair, I now hate you, and I am bitter and resentful against you, and I refuse to forgive you, because life should be fair. Do you see how we adopt these worldly mindsets, and it affects everything that we do and say and believe and act out on? We don't often realize that these forms of thinking are worldly, sinful, and straight out of the mind of Satan, but they are. Most of us don't intend to mimic the thinking of the godless society we live in. But like a fish that doesn't know it's wet because it has never lived anywhere except in water, Christians can live in a worldly manner without realizing it because they are so accustomed to it. We must pursue Christ to such a degree that we are fully satisfied in him so that so that we not only recognize the deceitful philosophies and traditions of man in our society, but we, we must learn to hate them and abstain from them for the glory of God. We cannot allow ourselves to be distracted by the world because it robs us of being satisfied in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for... The study, I thank you for the study today, even of the world. I pray that we would take these things to heart and that we would consider them and that we would be more and more seeking to be satisfied in Christ. I pray that as we go to our small groups that you would be honored and glorified in our discussion. In your name we pray, amen.